0: Morning Christchurch. Before we get into the sermon, a uh, couple of housekeeping items uh, that I just want to mention for the next couple of weeks in the life of the church. Um, First of all, next week we'll have confirmations. And uh, Bishop Trevor, you remember our bishop, um, our bishop is on sabbatical, Bishop Todd. Bishop Trevor is helping and assisting our diocese in his uh, absence. And uh, he was the bishop who was down here for the Healing Our Wounds conference earlier this year. So he'll be back next week uh, confirming uh, many of you who are being uh, confirmed into the Anglican Church. That's really exciting. Um, Secondly, after that, We're going to enter into a series on the Psalms. And um, this is a a normal thing we do, maybe not every summer, but almost every summer, taking the Psalms that we receive in our lectionary and making sure that we're preaching through them. And the the purpose, the Psalms, it's the prayer book of the church. And so we want to give full attention to all of God's word. And so we'll go through a summer Psalm series after that. And then uh, starting Today, but then for the next three weeks, on next three Sundays, I'll be on vacation, so I won't uh, be worshiping with you. And um, I'll miss seeing you, miss being around here. I was recently uh, speaking with my spiritual director, and uh, she asked me, She said, "Um, Where are the places where you encounter the Lord the most? And I named off a couple of places, and one thing I just said was Sunday mornings, worshiping with Christ Church something about the community here, so I will miss you. I'll be praying for you and um, excited for some time with my family, some extended time with my family, and then we'll be back uh, after three Sundays. Let's pray together. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, we need your word. We need life with you. We need reorientation towards you, and so would you come near right now. Through these words, we ask and pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. One uh, note I also should mention um, while I'm gone, Father Bill, uh, Father Bill Walker, will be the, the priest on staff, priest in charge of the parish. All right, today is Trinity Sunday, and you might hear that and think, oh my goodness, we have to have a sermon on the Trinity. What, what are we in for? What does that mean? The, the Trinity, when we start to think about the Trinity, it's that one doctrine that Christians often say, you know, I love Jesus. Um, But do I have to deal with that doctrine or it's the trinity is confusing and I don't want to talk about it Um, I'd rather just maybe set it aside and not have to deal uh, this morning with talking about the trinity Um, And yet I believe there's nothing more fundamentally practical For living the Christian life than understanding this doctrine of the trinity. I remember when I was 21 I was on a uh, a campus ministry retreat, and there were a couple of hundred college students there. And I got into one of those conversations that happens, you know, late into the night, after midnight. And you're talking with another person, and you just kind of hit a place of, like, deep conversation together. And we were kind of in that place having, you know, just conversation back and forth. And I asked him this question. I said, do you think that a person has to believe in the Trinity in order to be saved? Do you think that it, the person has to believe in the Trinity in order to be saved? That's a really easy conversation at 1:15 in the morning. This guy, really thoughtful guy, is actually an executive pastor today at a, at a large church. And he thought for a minute and he said, you know, I think, I think as soon as you believe that Jesus is God who died for you, and as soon as you believe that the Spirit is God who fills you, you already believe in the Trinity, whether you know that doctrine or not. At the moment of salvation, you believe in the Trinity. Every born-again believer already believes in the Trinity. Everyone who's trusted Jesus as Lord believes in the Trinity. You might know the precise, you might not know the precise theological language. And you might not know some of the history of the councils, of how this doctrine was hammered out in the early church where wise believers would gather and reflecting on scripture say, how do we make sense of this God who truly came to earth and truly fills us? You might not know all the the implications there, but you believe in the Trinity the moment you encounter the risen Jesus. And I don't want to pretend that there's not mystery here. So here's a theme that we're going to hold is that we can know God truly, but we will never know him fully. We can know him truly. He truly reveals himself, but we never know him fully. Fully, and so the best way to begin thinking about and understanding the Trinity is we begin with Jesus, the doctrine of the Trinity. It's rooted in the person of Jesus, and uh, so we'll start there. And when you begin with Jesus, you have to ask, what was Jesus's primary work? What did he come to do? And here are a few different ways that um, the Gospels talk about it. They all say it a little bit different. Matthew uh, says Jesus; he he's describing his mission is to bring healing to the sinners, not the righteous. Mark 10, he says, to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why he's come. Luke 4, I've come to set the captives free. And then John 10, I've come that they would have life and have life to the full. Each of the gospels says it a touch different, but they say the way that this mission gets accomplished is through the cross. They all define it a little bit differently, but they say his mission gets, def- gets fully completed on the cross. This restoring of the relationship between God and humanity. So in the church, hammering out who is Jesus and how to think about God. See, the church is it's constantly being pulled in two directions. This is like all the way back to the early church. Where, where, there's two directions of maybe misunderstanding who is Jesus. And I've got a, a little image I'll put up here. If we can go ahead and put the next slide up. Two ways of maybe wrongly thinking about Jesus. On the one hand... We're tempted to think, and the early church wrestled with this, is Jesus just a really good man? You know, like the best man, the one who could really follow God's law. Is he just a really special man that God came down, God's presence came down and adopted him Is this special son of God? Maybe he came down at the baptism. That's on the one hand, is he just a really special man? And then on the other hand, does Jesus only seem to be human? He's not really human. Because God can't really step down into the world and suffer and die on the cross. He only seems like he's human. So we, there's these two tensions in the early church that they're wrestling through. Who is Jesus? And this is going to ultimately drive of how we get to the doctrine of the Trinity. We're going to look at this first one here, this adoption one. This is... Um, adoptionism, and this gives host, this way of thinking about Jesus, that Jesus is only the really important, really special man, gives host to a number of wrong ways of following the true God. Definition here, Jesus was a really good man whom God adopted as his unique son. I kind of think of him as like Batman Jesus. You know, he doesn't have superpowers, but he's, he's kind of really special and really important. And um, he gets to be classified with the superheroes. This is the, the Batman Jesus. Um, some of the ancient heresies with this Arianism, Pelagianism, you might look these up later, but some contemporary examples Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses. Those are, even though they're contemporary, they're really ancient um, in what they believe about Jesus. How does Jesus fulfill his mission on the cross? According to this view, Jesus is the perfect example of how we should all act. The difficult thing about a heresy is it it contains much truth. Jesus is the example for how we should act, but he's more than an example. The cross is more than just an example of how to live. It is redemption itself. So the spirituality that comes out of this is performance-based legalism self-control to actualization. Here's how you might just think about it. Jesus is a human, a special human, but he's only saved by keeping God's law perfectly, which means salvation is really about how strongly you can keep God's law. Can you keep his law perfectly? Can you do that out of your own will? The cross is only an example for how to live, which means our spirituality is our own effort to become like Jesus. Jesus is not truly and eternally God. The cross doesn't offer redemption, it offers example. So this spirituality ends up becoming very self-centered, that I control my formation, I control my discipleship, I control my obedience to God. It's actually a very self-centered spirituality. It doesn't really grapple with the reality of sin that our wills are in bondage. Our wills are captive to sin. It doesn't believe that God really loves us until we clean ourselves up, become clean, become better, work harder, be stronger. Anyone who's ever wrestled with any form of addiction, any sort of temptation that you can't overcome, knows the pain of this form of spirituality. This is not actually offering any healing to humans, the scripture uh, that refutes this best we heard it this morning. Colossians 1, 15 through twenty. I'll just read a little excerpt from it. it. Says this is one of the early songs of the church, a, a songs that the church would have sung. It says he, Jesus, he's the image of the invisible God. Think of the Old Testament and how God was not able to be seen, but suddenly in Jesus we have an image. We have this perfect image who's come forward. By him, by Jesus, all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, he is the creator, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. That's like biblical code for all kingdoms, all nations, all powers, all spiritual realities. He has created them all. And not just has he created them all. All things were created through him and for him. He is the center of the universe. Jesus is the gravity around which the whole universe is revolving, and he is before all things. He is not just a human who lived a really good life and was adopted as God's son. He is eternal with God himself. Creator stepping down into creation. Author stepping down into the the story. William Shakespeare walks among the play. It's maybe one of the ways to think about it. He has entered our life and in our story. That's on the one hand, this adoptionistic view. Here's the other one. We'll go back to the other way. Um, Jesus only seems to be human. And this is um, the ancient belief. It's called doceticism. And it gives rise to a number of different ways of misunderstanding who God is. That word docetic. It's the Greek word that means seems. Jesus only seems to be human, only seems to be human. The impulse said that Jesus wasn't, he wasn't really human, he only seemed human, which means he didn't really suffer on the cross. He only seemed to suffer on the cross because God's so much of a spirit. He could never really step down into this world, entering all the mess of human life. The heresies associated with this, Gnosticism, you probably know that one, that the soul is good, the body is bad, we just need to escape the body. An ancient one called Apollinarianism, where God just comes to replace his mind in our mind, kind of leaving behind our minds. Modern one, Islam, Jesus didn't die on the cross, someone else died in his place, but it wasn't him. Christian science, sometimes there's, um, in Christian churches, there can be like a hyper-healing movement, that you should never suffer, have pain. Sometimes a prosperity gospel that you should always have good things and never encounter pain in your life. The cross, there is no cross because God did not undergo suffering, did not undergo pain, which means the spirituality of this is escapism, kind of a flight from physical life. It's spiritual, but not committed to a local church. See, the problem of this one of the central things we say about God is that He knows your pain, He knows your suffering. He stepped into life just like you. But this version of Jesus says, if you are suffering, you're not near God. If you're experiencing pain, that's your own fault. And you need to get out of that pain. Now, to be sure, God does, um, in the end, will restore all things. But there are times that we endure sufferings and lonelinesses and despairs of this world. Our salvation is not escape from the world. The world is really good. God wants to save your soul, yes, and your body. Your body matters. So discipleship isn't just about finding happiness or seeking to escape or reject your body or thinking that holy living isn't important or using substances to numb your pain, but being awake and alive to whatever you are going through. Jesus is there with you. He will not leave you. One of the scriptures, or some of the scriptures uh, against this, and you hear them in our creed, Jesus is truly born of a woman. He's born of the Virgin Mary. And he experienced all the emotions of what it means to be human. You remember at Lazarus' tomb, Jesus wept. You remember on the cross, Jesus said, I thirst. He experienced all that it is to be human. Truly God, and also truly human. Fully both of them. Which leads us back to this picture. Jesus is God-man, fully God, fully human. See, Christianity is totally unique at two points from every other religion. And it's centered all around Jesus' identity on the cross. See, all other religions say that humans, you have to sacrifice to get to God, to get God to love you. Lay down your life, lay down your wealth, lay down your material things, and that will get the God or the gods to like you. But in Christianity, it says it different. It says, God sacrifices for you so that you are able to love God. It's totally different than every other way of looking at God. This is a a picture of Anselm of Canterbury. Actually, um, not a picture. If we can go to the next one, uh, a painting of him. They didn't take pictures back in the 11th century. (laughs) painting of Anselm of Canterbury, and uh, he wrote an immensely important book called Why the God-Man? This central question, why did God become human? Why did God become a man? And he's asking this question, what does it matter that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And he answers it this way. You can look what he writes. He says, The debt that humanity owes was so great that while humans alone owed the debt, it was such a big debt, only God could possibly pay this debt, so that the same person must be both man and God. It was necessary for God to take humanity into his own person, so that he who in his own nature ought to pay, that is, humans, but could not, should be in a person who could. Okay, that's maybe like super complicated language. So um, let me say it this way. When, when children come for baptism, I say the same thing, but I say it a little bit differently. And we're talking about why is it important that God became human? So like a 10 or 11-year-old is talking to me, and I'm, I'll say something like this, like, have you ever gotten in a fight with one of your siblings Yes, always, right? That happens pretty commonly. Okay, what's a fight that you started? Uh, I took a toy from my sibling. Pretty common. Okay, you took a toy from your sibling. Um, why did you do that? I wanted it. Did it make you happy for a minute? Um, when you no longer felt happy, how did you make it right with your sibling again? Well, I had to go and ask for forgiveness. And then what did you do? And then I had to give the toy back. Okay, so you gave something back, and you asked for forgiveness, and it repaired this relationship. Then I said, now think about this. Infinite God, and you've walked away from You've broken relationship. You've turned your back on him. What will you give back to him to make it right between you and God? What could you possibly give back? And how would you know even how to approach God and give something back to him? See, that's what Anselm is saying is that even if humans wanted to offer something back to God, they couldn't. We need God himself to come down and make the offering, but God can't can't make the offering. God can't suffer. God can't die. So he himself becomes human, representing us, offering his life for us on the cross. Only Jesus, true God, true man, can repair this relationship, which is how we begin to think of the Trinity. We can think and we can imagine of God the Father as God and now we have God the Son. God the Son, also God. We've got the Father, we've got the Son. How do we begin to think about the Spirit? And I, I said there are two points where Christianity is different. First, that God sacrifices for us. Second, all other religions say that the power for keeping the religious laws comes from within, comes from yourself. How do you lead a good and moral life? You, you work yourself. You keep the laws Christianity says the power for keeping the religious laws also comes from God. That he will come and put his very self into you, his very presence for you. Jesus himself sending his spirit to make us holy like him. Look at what Jesus says in John 14, 23. And try to catch this for the first time, just the audacity of this. Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him. We will make our home with him. The Father and the Son are going to come and make their home with you, the one who loves Jesus. How is he going to do that? This is from our gospel reading today, John 16. He'll do it when the Spirit of truth comes. He'll guide you into all truth. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That's why I said, the Spirit will receive from me. He will make it known to you. Jesus says, all the Father has is his. The Spirit will take and he'll give it to you. believer, individual. The Holy Spirit, the one we talked about last week on Pentecost, coming to dwell in each and every person. You becoming a living temple. Someone who carries around not just a piece of God, but God himself. To bump up against you, to bump up against the church, is to bump up against almighty, eternal God. Taking this all together, the picture that emerges in Scripture in the early church is that there is one God. You remember the a famous passage, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, one God. And yet this one God subsists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in eternal unity and diversity. How do we think about this? How do we begin to talk about this? You know, there's all these analogies of how to talk about the Trinity. And as soon as you start talking some sort of analogy, there's someone who's going to say, that's why that's a heresy. You know, someone's going to come through and tell you you're you're thinking about it wrong as soon as you talk about the the Trinity in any analogy, because our language always breaks down. But the one that I love the most, and I'll venture out on this, I'm going to offer one. Um, The one that I love the most and the one that the early church often used was think of uh, a dance, like a a dance. I know there are a number of dancers at at Christ Church. Think of a dance. And um, I've told you all this before. Uh, When I'm married, my wife um, is Greek. Her whole family is Greek. They immigrated in the early 20th century. And um, there was a lot of stuff going on in the wedding that, I mean, it was like my big fat Greek wedding. And I was trying to, to pick out different traditions that are like, what is this? And why are we doing that? And no one was walking around squirting Windex or anything. But it was, I mean, there were things happening that I was like, I'm just not familiar with this. One of the things I loved was in the reception when all the the grandmothers and the grandfathers, the yayas and the papus got together, the old timers. And they got in the center of the room and it started playing this music and they linked arms together. And in choreography, they, they started moving and dancing as one dance Many persons, many of the the older yayas and papus, the grandparents, dancing together, this one dance, but this multiplicity of persons in union together, a unity and a diversity. And there's kind of this energy. And as they were doing it, more and more people started gathering up. It's almost like they were being swept into the energy of the dance. They were coming forward um, into this moment with these as well. Many persons, but one dance. And the church has said, this is kind of what the Trinity is like, one God. an eternal love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this eternal dance, one God in the moment. And you could be wondering, this is all interesting to think about. Why does it matter to know about the doctrine of the Trinity? I said it's one of the most practical things. Why does it, how does it practically help? Well, think about this. What is the greatest commandment? You just say this out. Love God and love, yeah, with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. When you think of God, if you had to pick one word that perhaps best characterizes who this eternal holy being is, I'm guessing many of you would say the word love. It's our greatest commandment. It's the way we talk about God, love itself. This word love, so vague, so malleable, how do we define love? I would say the answer is the Trinity. The Trinity is what defines love. Look at the the triune God, this dance from all eternity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, loving Son. Son, receiving the love, loving back the Father. And the shared love of the Spirit between them, the bond of love. If God were only one being, one person, he wouldn't be love itself. Because you know love always pours forth. Love is always generative. So God is eternally love. This trinity gives us a picture of this. We get tripped up because we're used to thinking that one being is one person. With God, he's not less personal than us. He's more personal. It's tri-personal one being. Think of how the doctrine of the, the trinity makes sense of every other Christian doctrine. All right, what is Creation. Creation is not that God was lonely and needed to make humans. It's not that God needed some people to serve him. Rather, again, think of the dance. God is so loving, so outpouringly generous that the the energy of God's life produced, generated, graciously gave forth creation. We're here as gift, which means every single one of you exists as a gift that he chose to create Think of salvation, his own creation, his precious children rejecting him, taking up weapons against him, hurting one another, despising him. How does love respond? The full God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, triune God, works to bring our salvation. Father sending Son, Son becoming human and dying for us, redemption and Spirit coming down, sanctifying us, all three members participating in this generous, outpouring act of love to bring you home. Think more practically, what is marriage? Marriage is the union of love, where there is mutual love, not domineering from one spouse over the other, but mutuality and respect and reverence for one another. What is success in your life? How do you measure success? Trinity means that God is inherently relational. The measure of your success is in relationships, how you treat others, how you love others. What is belonging to a church means? It is the, the unity of truth with a grace towards those who sometimes disagree with you. There's nothing as practical as the doctrine of the Trinity, the community of one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit from all eternity, mutual love with one another. I want to maybe close with just a final word, Um, and I'm probably thinking of this because I'm actually getting ready to head to the beach, so maybe this is why this is on my mind. Um, I'm I'm talking as if we can totally understand God, and I, I said this theme at the beginning. We can know God truly. He desires to reveal himself. We can never know him fully. So think about the ocean. You think of the ocean, and you just think of the vastness of the ocean, how wide of an expanse it is, how deep it is, the unfathomable depths of the ocean. And yet we come and and splash around and play in the waves. We come and touch the waters of the ocean, but we're not set adrift at sea, left to ourselves. This doctrine of the Trinity, it is like playing in the waves. You are invited to know truly the nature of God, but not, not fully. God is incomprehensible. He is beyond our ability to fully comprehend, to force into our minds, to hold in our hearts. But he does desire to know us truly. He invites each and every one of us, not just to know him, but to taste him, to experience, to fall in love with him, to be found by him, to be called by him, to be known by him, to play in his waves, to taste the the salty breeze of his presence. He invites that for all of us in Christ and through the power of his spirit. That's the doctrine of the Trinity, the outpoured love of God for us today. Amen.